This is a, a foundational transformation we see happening in the economy. EFI and blockchain are redefining business, the economy, and our society. Welcome to Redefined, our podcast talking about how blockchain and Web3 is changing business, culture, and society. Um, I'm your co-host, Jeremy Almond, and I'm here with my awesome co-host, Megan Guy. How you doing, Megan? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Who do we have on today? It's going to be a really interesting episode, you know, talking about um, how blockchain and gaming intersect, right? Yeah. Uh, today, we have Robbie Ferguson joining us uh, all the way from Sydney. Um, Robbie is the co-founder of Immutable, um, which he'll tell us a little bit about, and I think is doing some really cutting edge stuff, um, on the front end of how blockchain, um, can not only revolutionize the $200 billion gaming industry, um, but a whole lot beyond that with microtransactions and, uh, things of that nature. So Robbie, welcome. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of your journey to get here? Uh, of course. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so maybe a, a bit of a backstory is... So I got into Bitcoin in 2014. I thought it was okay. I wasn't that interested, but I became completely obsessed with Ethereum. And that was because you could play with it. You could build smart contracts. And it was pretty clear that this was going to be the future of how everything under hood ran. We waited and then NFTs came out. The first ever NFT was called a CryptoPunk. We saw this and we said, hey, this will be how gamers own in-game items. Uh, and we thought that this would really be like the, the sort of breakout mainstream use case of Web3 technology. And so we built a prototype, which was the first ever multiplayer game on a blockchain. It was called Etherbots. Uh, it went viral, but it was a terrible user experience. It will cost you hundreds of dollars to play around today because all of this logic is on chain. Think like rock, paper, scissors on the blockchain, and you can win some cool robot parts if you beat your opponent. We went extremely technical into this, and we go into in the depth, commit reveal schemes, verifiable probabilities like a, a ridiculous length to make this all decentralized on chain before realizing that wasn't at all what the industry needed to mature. What it needed was a ridiculously easy platform to create real economic rights around in-game items. Uh, and so we built Immutable. Um, and back then we, we, we started by building another game because every great platform in history has always started by dog fooding and, and building an important use case first. So for us, that was take the clearest example of this working in real life, which is literally like Yu-Gi-Oh or Pokemon cards or Magic the Gathering cards if people in this audience to play with it, where you can play and trade with your friends and at the school grounds and make that digital by preserving all the ability to trade stuff. So we made a, a trading card game called God's Unchained. That was, you know, super successful. It made 15 old Eben its first year being alive. Uh, and we started from that to build the immutable platform, which is, you know, today uh, the largest platform for blockchain or decentralized games. We work with over 150 games, everyone from Disney, DC Comics, TikTok, Marvel, Alluvium, and we've raised more than 300 million US dollars from the Singaporean uh, firm Temasek, uh, Tencent, Bigcraft, obviously King River, and more. The scale of immutable is actually quite impressive. I'm curious, so before we get into maybe a little bit more of the details of how, how blockchain-based gaming works, may, maybe for the audience who, you know, isn't a big gamer like me, I personally, um, and in my spare time, like the two things I love to do outside of tech are surfing and gaming. Um, 
But I think for like the business audience, it might actually not be clear how freaking big gaming as an industry is. I think yes. um, last time I checked, it's like uh, bigger than the the movie industry, the entertainment industry, and the media industry combined, or something like that. Yes. And and then trading within it is um it's it's a huge economy, like the actual intra trading that happens. So um, before we get into even the deep like blockchain rabbit hole, um, can you give some context for like a normal business person, like the the gaming economy itself? Yeah. So gaming is roughly a 200 billion US dollar a year industry. The most interesting thing is that the vast majority of that 200 billion dollars doesn't come from your ability to buy the downloadable game to play Skyrim or Call of Duty or Halo. It is literally the outfits and the skins and the in-game items in these games. It's the coins in Candy Crush which let you progress to the next level. It's the John Wick or Avengers outfit that your 13-year-old kid wants to buy in Fortnite. And this is crazy because all of these essentially digital property were held on centralized servers and people get zero value. It's a completely sunk cost. And so our thesis was pretty simple. The reason we started with gaming is gamers are digital natives. They're used to the idea that this stuff should be valuable. They, they love this. They experience this. This is often their lives. We see ultimately gaming subsuming music, movies, TV, and interactive content. Interactive entertainment will be the way you do everything from work to play to movies and more. But ultimately, what people are being given right now is a substandard set of property rights because that's just the way the industry was invented and that's been set as the default. And it works to the industry's benefit. They have a completely captive economy and audience. They can control this economy with impunity. And every single example of a, I would say, gray marketplace implementation of an economy like you said today is basically failed. You know, you had Counter-Strike Go, which was probably the biggest skin marketplace for uh, weapon skins for a, a shooter game. And Valve, the company which runs the marketplace behind it, said one day, you can only trade these assets at once, most uh, at most once per week. And suddenly, hundreds of millions of hours and hundreds of millions of dollars of assets went to zero. Off skins, a multi-hundred million dollar third-party marketplace went belly up. And we think it's it's not fair. We think this stuff should be open. We think people should have guaranteed property rights. Uh, and the reason we love this for crypto is it has nothing to do with the price of Ethereum. It has nothing to do with the price of Bitcoin. It's all about players already want to trade stuff. They spend enormous money on how do we make that 10 times better? It's, I mean, it's way more than 10 times better. You're going from zero to one. Yeah, I remember, um, I think one of the first questions kind of I get at is, it, you know, are players asking for this? Like it, it feels to me sort of not thinking about, again, that economic value necessarily of the things I own in a game. Like I have them, I can do things with them, I can trade them with my friends within the confines of the game, right? Um, but I think kind of the eye-opening moment for me, ironically, was uh, mid-pandemic. I was one of uh, the many that ended up getting very deep down the rabbit hole of animal cropping. And when you were playing that, actually, there was a whole separate like set of apps on your phone that people yeah. were using to like, you know, go visit each other's island, and trade and purchase, and and an economy that actually had been pulled out of the game that was transacting in real dollars uh and it was it was kind of a light bulb moment i think that gosh like you know think about all the games out here um and we haven't been thinking about this the right way right you spend money on something you expect to be able to do what you wish with it not only use it in one very narrow context 
yeah, you have rights, but sometimes but because something goes intangible and it's digital, we suddenly say you have no rights and, and we think that's crazy. We, we think it should be the same. But, but then isn't part of the challenge, like how do you get the, um, a little bit of the industry to be able to transfer those rights in, in an open way, right? Because it's not like I can take, I don't know, my sword from Skyrim and move it over to Half-Life, right? Or, or whatever. Yeah. So how do you enable like openness and are you seeing pushback from the industry to do it? Because for the player, this actually yeah. seems really, really powerful. Like I bought it, I spent it, I want to use it in all of my favorite games. Um, that may or may not be in the best interests of the platforms. Like how do you guys have that kind of conversation? Yeah. So there's two questions there, the technicals and then the business commercials. And the technicals is by default. If you build with an open collectible or NFT, whatever you want to call it, it is by default open. You can take that and you can use it everywhere. And that to us is incredibly important. But on the second piece, why would developers do it? It's really about, I mean, it, it's probably multi-pronged. One of the classic disruptor play. We want to move the industry to the state where gamers are not happy to play something if they don't have these rights. That's the expectation rather than a pro. And the second piece is we think it actually creates much better business models and game developers are embracing it. Even with what we've seen in crypto over the last 12 months, there has been a consistently increasing interest from AAA game developers. Now there's a little less urgency for them to show public markets that they're thinking about this and develop the narrative. It's about them genuinely doing prototypes, but this is the new way of distribution. And the best example I can give for this is Magic the Gathering, again, has an estimated secondary market cap of physical cards that get traded by people at 20 billion US dollars, literally. But Magic the Gathering can tap into zero of that value. And so every year they have to create new cards, which depreciate the value of old cards because they're more powerful, they're cooler, they're newer, they have more interesting or relevant game design in order to monetize. Imagine instead they could simply take a clip of every single time someone trades this in the secondary marketplace economy, and then their incentive is just grow the value of this economy, create more interesting game modes, do whatever decisions are in the best interests of maximizing the amount of people who want to play in the universe of Magic the Gathering. And that is the true magic of digital ownership. At the end of the day, if you give a player an item, you can always deprecate the game and move on to the next one. That item loses a significant amount of value. What we're building is the infrastructure that facilitates incentive alignment, where the game publishers and builders have exactly the same motivations as the game players. The best example of this is cooperative, where everyone owns a company rather than one single person owning a company. I think the beautiful thing behind that is the game developers then have the incentive to even fix things like how do you take value from one game and transfer it to the next. The latest Call of Duty Warzone took all the assets from Warzone 1 and made them valueless. You couldn't transfer anything from the first downloaded game and your, your assets to number two because that's their incentive. But imagine now you can transfer all of that audience and create an ongoing economy that is just, hey, how do we make the coolest thing possible maximize trading volume and we take clips on it. So I think that's one really good example of how you can have a much better and much more aligned business model. How exactly sort of do the economics work? Like, cause these are pretty inexpensive items, right? Typically, I mean, I don't know. Some of them. Uh, how do the economics work such that that works for the game publisher, for the infrastructure and for the user? You know, do you end up having to spend the same amount of transaction fees? Or have you guys solved that? Transaction fees is a good one. When you build an immutable and obviously what our goal is, is make this really scalable, make it carbon neutral uh, and, and make it really easy to use. 
So when, when you pay on Austria, you actually pay zero dollars in gas fees, um, and and we're able to abstract it away from end users. We think that's incredibly important. You're gonna have things like guaranteed secondary market royalties. So if you're the creator of an asset, and and particularly as we see massive user generated content, if you've been alive in the last three months, you've seen someone writing a Twitter thread on how AI will change the world. It's not gonna be at the point I I cannot read another top ten thread. But uh, w- w- the reality is we're having a huge influx of AI and user-generated content. Content creation is being democratized. In 20 years, you'll type into a search bar, make me a film starring Matt Damon, Jennifer Lawrence, set in Paris, where it's an action comedy thriller. And there's a massive twist at the end, and we'll generate that on the fly. That's how good NNs and LLMs are going. And what that means is how do we create property rights for curators and generators? rather than uh, uh, sort of having everything rely on a monolithic company making content. Yep. The reason we're so excited for gaming is we see a very open future where Roblox and Fortnite are having multiple game modes just made by everyday people. Uh, Fortnite recently released their, their sort of you know open modded uh, in- environment where people have built things like Elden Ring. Uh, in there, you have Roblox having someone build a mod that looks just as good as the last Call of Duty game. And like as someone who played Roblox as a kid, it is mind-boggling how quickly this industry is progressing. But we very much run the risk of living in a future where everything is digital and everything is uh, easy to create, but there's precisely zero economic guarantees or rewards for creators or publishers. And so what we really, like at the core of what we're doing, we're building digital property rights or digital physics for the future world that's owned by everyone rather than by a giant social media company taking 52%. Now, now I think one of the things... um... People, when they think about NFTs or some blockchain use cases, it, it's monkey JPEGs, right? So mm. how, how does the, what's the one-on-one explanation of sort of why blockchain enables sort of this unique leveling of royalties among different constituents? Like, how does that actually work in a way that couldn't have been built five or 10 years ago, kind of pre-smart um, contracts and things like that? I'll quickly touch on monkey JPEGs. For us, if you go to Gods Unchained, which is it's the first game we ever made, you will not see the word NFT anywhere on the website because it's not important to us. Players should play a game without knowing that it is blockchain technology, and they should just experience the ability to have assets they can sell or trade. When they earn something, they can get real value from it, and the incentive of that publisher is aligned to the future and long-term economic value of that game. And that's where I think the industry is going. Everything we build is you can't even know it's crypto under the hood. We just released our wallet, immutable passport, which you can sign on with an email. But users still under the hood have ownership of their own stuff. I think there's this question in general of um, then why couldn't, if if everything under the hood is blockchain, but nobody sees it, then why do you need a blockchain at all? Like what does smart contracts actually do? Or is it, or is it just a bu- buzzword? The, the reason you need a blockchain is the same reason that every database or marketplace which is implemented in this past have massively failed. I gave you the example of, of Counter-Strike Go, where the, com- the, the company running it decided one day to just change it with a pew. What we're building is the rails that guarantees that this stuff can actually become valuable. The reason we don't have a trillion dollars of digital stuff being traded is no one can trust this. No one can even build a third-party marketplace without having the rug pulled from under them by a giant centralized developer saying, actually, we think this is the better path for us to monetize right now. You know, same as what's happened with, you know, app store aggregators and people who exert incredible vertical control over distribution is they keep raising their rake until either a regulator says no, a business says no, or consumers get fed up. 
And we're just trying to short circuit that cycle. What's interesting about both your companies is you're running some like really amazing technology, you know, blockchain-based uh, enabling better economics for the people or economics at all <laughs> for the people who are using it. But you've both made a really conscious decision to kind of keep that under the hood <laughs> and not uh, broadly advertise kind of to your constituencies that, um, you know, if you're running a, a blockchain company. Can you talk a little bit about like that thought process? And do you think that flips at some point? Like how do we sort of migrate folks from web two to web three? Yeah, I'm I think for us, the question is, how do you create 10x better value than the previous industry? And so I think you've got to build a company that's actually significantly better for customers than what they were coming from. I actually believe blockchain enables you to do new business models that you couldn't have done before. But but the focus is, well, what does that actually enable? So in you know, Paystan's case, that means moving money much more efficiently, right? So, um, you know, less less security risk from SVB kind of falling apart, less um, sort of financial risk in terms of moving money cross borders, less, um, you know, cost from fees like, you know, big monopolies like Visa and MasterCard. Um, but those actually have to play out into real economics for businesses. Um, you could see, you know, the same kind of thing in gaming, right? I mean, as a gamer, personally, I'm quite interested in how Robbie thinks about this, but like, I don't really care how the technology works. I just want to be able to you know, whatever, kill, kill the troll, get the sword, and then go go use it somewhere else and, and, and keep it because it's an awesome sword. I, how, how, does, how does Robbie make the ma magic happen? I don't know. What do you think, man? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. If you go to a website and you see the green lock in the upper left corner, you know that your communication with that website is safe. You don't need to know how HTTPS works under the hood. If you're going to a website that has low latency, they don't advertise to you, hey, this is AWS or Azure. It's just under the hood infrastructure. And we see the same thing for Web3, which is users should know things like what self-custody means at the end of the day, but that should really even be a, a choice that power uses. Uh, and, and we should be creating stuff that's incredibly simple for, for players, but also for developers to use. And I think one of the unique differentiators for us is rather than focusing on making better blockchain contract infrastructure, um, which we, we have, we really focus on everything should be abstracted through APIs. Unless this is as simple to build on as Stripe is for payment rails, this is not going to go mainstream and developers need incredibly easy ways to build real economies. So on the real economy question, I'm curious how both of you actually think about um, token economics, right? Because in our case, actually, we've stayed away from um, tokenizing kind of how do we think about the business? Um, you know, Robbie, you guys have kind of taken an approach that token economics are a are, are necessary part of the um, digital economy for you lots of skepticism in that world and you know certainly megan on the venture side you know i think post ico everyone is has has kind of said well how how real is token economics how do they work where are they not scams where is there sort of real economies be created so um maybe, maybe we can kind of spend some time for token economics for folks that are maybe a little bit skeptical of um where and how that plays a role in in blockchain they could be incredibly powerful tools they can be like programmable equity or frequent flyer points on steroids where everyone can be empowered to own a piece of the thing that everyone's building. Uh, obviously, the the foundation that created the immutable ecosystem token never you know, did it an, an ICO or anything. It, it's really just about getting into the hands of people using our ecosystem, um, building on us and, and using that to help create this massive incentive aligned community where people can be rewarded for, for micro actions. Um, so that's, I think, the power for us. And 
Uh, obviously, the, the the foundation also uses this to build a massive ecosystem. So today we have more than 1.2 billion US dollars in a war chest that we can just use to help onboard games and onboard enterprises onto the middle platform. Yeah, I, I think this kind of goes back to the question, you know, maybe I asked you guys earlier. <laughs> it's a slightly different way to answer it. But, you know, you said uh, we don't want people thinking about the infrastructure they're using. Like my goal is to create something that's 10x better, right, than the previous experience. And as I think about tokens, I think there are a lot of people who've gone and created projects and launched tokens that aren't necessarily actually creating value for people, right? Or or the promise is there will be value once, you know, if we can get enough people using the token. That's a much harder pitch, I think. And I think that's where you've seen some of, um, you know, the bad actors and, and kind of horror behavior. And unfortunately, that's the stuff that gets amplified often in the media. At the end of the day, I think done right and kind of the way, you know, Robbie's talking about it and how IMX has done it, it's about delivering value and incentive to the people that are generating value and activity and helping develop your system. And so in that respect, it's like a much more powerful marketplace, right, than kind of what we had on, on the Web2 side of things. But certainly lots of opportunities, I think, for people to take it in the wrong direction. And, you know, the speculation side of it is a whole different um, uh, a whole different angle and kind of can of worms I, I won't get into. But, um, but yeah, I think as a real utility mechanism, it's quite a powerful concept. This is what made me fall in love with Ethereum in the first place. Uh, in one of the early white papers or, or something I wrote about, they wrote about the possibility of a decentralized Uber where the network was owned and operated not by a single company, but by every driver partner in the network. And that was facilitated and run by tokens. And you can easily see a world where fees on everything can come down because you don't need to have preservation of margin for a single company. But instead, every single participant in the network can actually own a part of that network. People creating value and driving every day can own a piece of the underlying equity. That to me is tremendously exciting. It is also probably the only solve to uh, inefficiencies in capitalism that is viable because there's still a massive profit incentive, but instead it's to many people and it's democratized rather than to a single company. Yeah. And I think that's actually really important is where token economics get a bad rap in my opinion is um, trying to apply token economics to use cases that don't actually need them. Um, how do you guys just think about it on on your side? Because you, you made a pretty conscious effort to do it. You know, because you guys have to make a conscious decision around building a foundation. What does that do? What were the trade-offs? How did you deal with regulation? I think uh, ultimately the reason that the the foundation created the token and that we we kind of work closely with that on the immutable ecosystem is every single person who plays any game on the immutable platform can effectively become a participant in the ecosystem. That's what we do. If you trade on our network, you get a piece of the ecosystem. You get exposure to, to future utility. Um, and, and and that has been incredibly powerful. I think it's why we have such a strong community today. Uh, I think it's part of the reason that, you know, games want to build on us because if you build on us, you have a million fans of people who want to try out your game uh, and uh, explore how you're implementing economies in, inside your game. So I, I think that's really cool. I think that's inevitable and possible. Um, you know, if, if you build a company and you have ESOP, Everyone becomes an owner uh, and, and works much higher. And I, I, I think that's beautiful. I think this is taking that to uh, a much larger scale to, to billions of people. It's really exciting to see these companies at scale because it's actually showing that there is real value and it's not just sort of 
um, hype and speculation. How do we bring the in industry forward when, you know, you have things like the SEC giving Wells notices to folks like Coinbase, you know, where where everything might be treated as a security? What What is... What is the right way to sort of interact with regulators, with folks in compliance, with folks who need to understand there is actually a new model and you can't think of this purely as how things have been built the last hundred years. Um, and then how do you sift out, you know, what is a lot of scam, unfortunately? I think there's definitely, there's definitely room for healthy regulation. I think FTX and, and Luda showed this. I think uh, USDC uh, shows this, but ultimately... There's also a good need for healthy, like the regulators were supposed to be watching the banks. Uh, and at the same time that they're, they're, they're wagging their finger at, at this stuff, there's, um, you know, a, a top 25 bank in the US, which is effectively insolvent because of interest rates decisions made by the Fed. I think it's incredibly myopic uh, from the SEC to be implementing what is a chilling effect. I think it's uh, very disappointing to see the White House's remarks. But it's also indicative of an institution that very much feels threatened, uh, which views the reserve currency status of the US dollar at risk, uh, and which will do everything possible to stifle innovation and also a, a, you know, appease short-termism in, in, in populist politics in order to stay in power. And I think they run the risk of just having it go offshore. And, and this is the most important technology that's been invented in the last 30 years, perhaps apart from AI. I am happy to concede that. Um, I think it, if we have the singularity, that will be really the only thing that matters. It's a little bit simpler for us. We're taking in-game items and we're making them tradable. It's like trading a Yu-Gi-Oh card or a Pokemon card. So I think it's very much on the, the much more compliant end of the spectrum. Obviously, you know, we, we, we aim to be in the top 10% of compliance for Web3 companies. Um, so... I think it's a much safer place for people to experiment. Games companies feel a lot more comfortable moving into to this category than they do moving into DeFi or collectibles or stable coins. That's why we started here in the first place. We wanted to build a real use case that didn't rely on speculative value. Robbie, you guys have done a lot with, you know, you kind of touched on this before, but some of the incumbents in the gaming space, you know, on the distribution side, on the developer side. Can you talk maybe a little bit about like how have you used those partnerships both to grow your audience, but but to me, that's another really important constituency when we start thinking about the policy implications, because if you've got much bigger incumbent firms also recognizing the importance of this technology and the shift that it can enable, uh, I think, you know, you're just coming from a very different angle than uh, the SEC having a one-way conversation with, with startups, right? Precisely. If you look at the top 20 game companies in the world, every single one of them, as a major full-time team researching how they can implement Web3 into their games. It's it's the future. Some of it is hedging and they're just making sure they know exactly what to do. Some of them are very much at the frontier. And I think we'll see from South Korean gaming studios and Japanese gaming studios in particular, where they were at the vanguard of the shift to mobile, of the shift to social, of the shift to free-to-play, that they very much believe themselves with the architect of what the future of real economic ownership inside, inside games is going to be. The first time you see a, a mainstream game, it's going to triple the active user base of crypto overnight. And people will suddenly see, hey, this can actually be used on a main, main scale. Um, and our thesis, you know, is this will go much beyond gaming. This is going to transform how we store and trade value everywhere. People will be able to trade their own term deposits, their own homes, insurance contracts, intellectual property, all with a set of property rights and more importantly, access to third-party financial infrastructure and liquidity that makes it far better prices and far more financial utility to the end user. Yeah, maybe, maybe we should dig into that because that's really powerful. Like 
ga gaming is actually like the super use case of a broader property rights, um, you know, set of applications. Yes. So yes. It might not be clear to people how broken things like property rights or insurance are, right? Like, I mean, uh, I have a place out in Mexico and, and just getting the titling process was absolutely insanity. Yes. So the first thing I'll say is that this is very much our, our goal. Like I think gaming is the first breakout use case. It's 100% focused on today, but ultimately it's a drop in the ocean compared to everything being transformed and tokenized. The nice thing is if we build a good platform for gaming, it's actually really easy to do it for the other use cases. If you look at 3.1 billion gamers owning maybe a, a thousand assets uh, each per year, which is actually not crazy, like probably people would far exceed that. You're well into the trillions of assets globally. There are th that is the most complex subset or topology of unique value you'll ever try and make liquid or create a good user experience for. So it's pretty trivial then to take a couple of billion homes or a few million term deposits or a hundred billion uh, insurance contracts. And I, I think that the difficulty <laughs> is this stuff isn't digital. You have to have businesses which are linking the Mexican local real title system to NFTs. And that's a business in and of itself. And that's why digital property will matter as a value proposition for all this stuff. True digital ownership only matters for stuff where you can have the value live completely digitally, where transference of custody of the asset transfers all value and there can never be anything which impugns that which is what gaming is it's what maybe a few on-chain financial products are we'll see more and more of this stuff over time but a huge chunk of value is going to be here it's drafted and lives in a legal system it lives in a, a, a bank it's a term deposit it lives in the ground it's a home and all this stuff will require businesses and the reason this stuff is going to be tokenized will not be digital ownership it's going to be superior liquidity and superior utility and the best example I can give here is imagine you're in, let's take your example, Mexico, and the local financial infrastructure is incredibly unwieldy and the, the local currency is unstable and you have the cheapest mortgage you can get is 10% because third-party financial infrastructure is, is just inefficient. As soon as you could have a mortgage on-chain contract, which is so efficient at appraising and allowing you to collateralize an on-chain asset that it can offer you a mortgage that's percent cheaper in your local jurisdiction, you suddenly have a multi-billion dollar impetus for every single home in that jurisdiction be tokenized overnight. And so that's why financial systems are at first slow, but then you have a rush. Well, and you, you could see how, um, you, you certainly see how you can tokenize financial instruments quite quickly. And those um, businesses are growing quite quickly, right? So accessing DeFi loans, accessing complex financial instruments cross-border, there's, there's many use cases but in many ways, it almost looks like a digital asset, right? Because you can sort of make money programmable in a way. Um, how does the smart contract enforce um, my my house title, which normally would be law firm, um, I don't know, a title person, to actually take the home back if something goes wrong? So like, how do we deal with the crossover from digital to real? The, the simple answer is there will be hundreds or thousands of businesses which just do that. They insure, they create the bonds, they say, hey, we're the... You know, the company that backs your sneakers to NFTs and it's StockX and, and, and they'll guarantee that the value of this stuff. For things like governments, I think you'll have the government write into law that when you transfer an asset that's a, a digital asset, that confers a property title transfer. And at that point, that's pretty strong protection because you have the exact same protection that guarantees the police will show up when someone trespasses in your house 
as long as you transfer the value of that NFT. So that, that's basically as, as good as you can get. How do we actually be able to re rebuild trust in society? If you, you decentralize the systems that are more likely to be corruptible, you still are going to have people who um, have to interface with it, but, but there's less risk on for those folks that are interfacing with it, right? So if you're saying, hey, there's going to be somebody at the local person, at the local office that's going to enforce the title, um, yes, but at least you know that the title and the, the contract around the title can't be, you know, confiscated, can't be corrupted or whatever. Yes. And, and this is where you have the ideas of things like oracles or synthetic assets, which haven't quite, uh, I think, taken off in a meaningful sense. But as soon as we get those right, we have pretty cool systems where on chain, you can have incentives to report the truth on anything. And then you have a very powerful and very flexible model to say, well, hey, no, actually, the owner of this house is X and, and people can vote on that or there's sufficient incentives to, to report on that truthfully. Um, and I think once that infrastructure gets right, we're going to have a very powerful model. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us, Robbie. Uh, fantastic you, conversation. Um, I've always been a big fan of Immutable and I'm even more excited now for the years ahead uh, and all the places that I think we'll see better outcomes, better businesses. Um, and yeah, moving towards this future, I think we're all excited about. So thanks a for- A lot of work to be done. Yeah. No, thanks. Thanks for having me guys. I really appreciate it. I love it. And Robbie, where can people find you if they um, they want to they want to learn more about kind of your views on how, how digital assets are actually going to change the world of, of business and politics? Well, I'm on Twitter. Not into it. Yep. Or um, twitter.com slash zero X Ferg. Yeah. Or if they want to build a game, immutable.com. All right. So you're at immutable.com. Um, if they want to build a game. Awesome. Well, that makes a wrap. Stoked to spend time with you, Robbie. We're going to have great episodes. Keep going to Redefine Podcast. Um, and we'll see you in the next episode. Cheers, everyone.